Hi, I'm Karen Thorson, and I am one of the producers of The Wire. And my main responsibility is I basically produce the post-production. This episode was the last episode of season two and was directed by Robert Colesbury, a colleague and another executive producer, and was his uh, last work because he tragically died this winter. So it's an honor and a privilege to be discussing this episode with that in mind. I'm sitting here with my colleague, Tom Zimney. Tom, why don't you introduce yourself? This is Tom Zimney. I'm an editor on the show, and it's my third season working on The Wire. I had a great chance to work with Bob and watch him uh, prepare for this episode, and and actually was on set the first day. I spent a limited time on the set, but... um, I made a special trip on the day of Bob's first shooting, and he was laughing at me, and I went down there to wish him luck and break a leg, and then I said, I'm gonna get the hell out of there, because I wanna get the dailies and believe the reality of the show. What's interesting about this whole opening sequence is that it starts on the image of the water, which is so important because this whole season took place on the waterfront. And he was able to weave in these little sensual moments very poetically that didn't conflict with the story or the dialogue. And it's kind of hard to do in this series because the writing is so precise, yet written to convey the feeling of absolute normal conversation. And we're still in the opening sequence. We've had very little dialogue just a little bit of radio chat and two lines with Ott, who is outside the can office, as they call it. And something very bad is about to happen, and like a lot of bad news, it just spreads like a stain, and suddenly all the people are gathering around, and this is all done with images, very sensitive sound, and direction. capture the environment throughout this episode and throughout his work on the series with his use of camera. Constant movement. And sound design. He was really into sound design throughout the series. We use quite a bit of what is naturally recorded in production and don't have to fight it very often or cheat it very often. This episode was cut by Jerry Peroni who really enjoyed working with Bob and uh, had a great time and talked to me during the cutting of this and was really excited that he was able to work on an episode. I remember her being really happy with all the dailies coming in and just really excited about the performances Bob really worked on getting some great performances and visuals for this episode. This is an interesting scene because it's a tragic unveiling of their leader and Nick's uncle and... Bob asks him to restrain the kind of melodramatic reaction that you think somebody's going to have, the weeping, the mayhem. They're in shock of understanding what's really come down here on this relatively placid day in their life. 
and this pullback that we're on is just so telling. They're just kind of stupefied, gathered around their leader who's been slain. Tom worked very closely with Bob constructing the main title sequence, which is in every single episode, season one and season two and season three. So this is also part and parcel of every episode, but it also was directed by the same man who directed episode 12, Bob Colesbury. Again, you can see his use of camera and movement. He was really kind of obsessed with the camera being sort of invisible with its movement, not taking you out of the scene. And again, it has some great sound design. And we worked on this sequence for weeks. And it's a great memory because it just took so many different levels and just got better. And he just understood the importance of an image telling a story. And giving it its time, not rushing it. I think that's important because in television, you know, you have an hour and you've got to cram a lot into it. This episode has 90-odd scenes. It was written with 112 scenes. Many were omitted in the writing process, but still 91 scenes in an hour is a lot of information. Yet to be able to give the imagery its moment and pay off just as equal measure to the dialogue is a difficult task in this time constraint. Nothing at Vondopoulos' house. He's not going back. He's dumped his bends and our GPS device in the downtown garage. Bob's whole language of filmmaking really comes from his feature experience. And both David Simon and Bob wanted the show to have that language. And you can see in his compositions and use of camera, it feels more like a film than a TV show. You don't have your traditional close-ups. Homicide for you, line two. And talking heads. Maybe he knows. really understood how to use space day, and uh, how to capture the environment of this office. This is also an interesting way of folding several scenes together to tell a story instead of laying them out linearly. We're intercutting the story of what's going on with Jay Landsman, delivering the news, but also receiving the news in the detail office. And by blending these two scenes together beautifully editorially, we shorten the length of time, expand the meaning of the scene, and keep it visually interesting and keep the viewer in. This clue that just has been delivered, these uh, bodies... You'll see them again and again throughout this episode so that you never lose the thread of the case. Back out there, take care of business. Just wanted to make sure they were treating me right. Making the most of it. I'm catching up on my reading. This scene is a very still and quiet scene, and everything is told in the facial expressions. It's all about what's not said. We got you, you understand? I appreciate the offer, but that won't be necessary. And I think it's a great example of Bob really getting David Simon's writing, where the lines are very subtle and capturing things with really the eyes. It is all about the eyes. This whole episode is about the eyes. perfectly well what you are saying. What I am saying to you is I will take care of them 
myself. Them? Who came at you? Again, you see Bob's moving camera and his choices, you know, keeping static on Thank Bell. You for your concern. Here we are with the eyes. This mm. is uh, the moment when Nick's going to be vengeful, decides he wants revenge. And within two minutes of this scene, he turns over and becomes like the little boy who needs his father to tell him what to do. And that was a very dramatic way to open the scene, right at the heart of it, right in Nick's eyes. And again, the scene opens up with a different shot composition. The scene before we started with her extreme wide, and this brings us right into Nick's headspace. Again, Bob playing with size to convey story. And this is a beautifully cut scene by Jerry Peroni again, who really established the tone and look of the editing in the pilot that she worked very close with David Simon and Bob Colesbury on getting that tone. And we all took her cue on how emotion would be played out in the cutting. This is also a good example of interesting sound design. It's very restrained. Having a radio play or music is often in this place, even though it's a sad moment, but it's just quiet to you're there with the emotions. What was she firing, you Bob had an amazing year for sound, and right from the start of the cutting process would be adding things and playing around with temp effects and would be there throughout the mix and really could pick out details that sometimes were distracting or details that just enhanced performance and feeling. This scene is a great example of the collaboration between... Bob, the director, and David Simon, the writer. This was a scene that was just stage direction. Bubbles raids the ambulance for drugs. Bob put it together and actually made it a scene. He put sound effects. There's several camera angles. Bubbles tries to get rid of the stuff that he's been nailed with taking. And there's a line here at the end of the scene. And that was just all kind of give and take. And I think it was a really excellent example of how they work together as a team. At least I remember the call. Stabbed repeatedly. Torso, abdomen. This scene is great because, you know, you're getting expository information that's important, how the guy died, what's important to the detail, the police force. The director is putting you in her head. So you're getting her emotion, but you're also getting the important facts of the case. But you're in her head. She was Sabatka's first friend and helped to draw him in, and now he's gone. Here we are at this big, beautiful, wide shot. Her head tilts down, 
And we start the next scene with the head tilted down as well. It's kind of a beautiful little poetry going on there with the editing. Bob had a great relationship with the uh, DP of the series, Uda, and they really worked together well, both in the role of director. And when Bob was executive producer, they just really established this language. And visually, it's really, again, very filmic. What about you? Don't know. On script, this scene was a little bit longer. And, uh, you know, time constraints, once again, Peroni just skillfully pulled the scene down to its essence and you lose nothing from it. I mean, she's a master with dialogue, with conversation, and how she'll linger for a pause before a next word is spoken, and how she plays with expressions and the use of eyes in the cutting. And this is something that I think Bob really paid close attention to, and their work together was just perfect on this episode. Case had enough legs on her that I got Burrell committed to keeping my crew together as a major case squad working out of CID. If you were going to charge him. Well, I'm going to charge his narco ass. You're going to do your son-in-law. You don't think I didn't tell her not to marry that brain-dead son of a bitch? I'll tell you the truth, Major. Everyone who saw the punch wrote on it. Bob loved the editing room and really had no fear having lines delivered on someone's back while you would stare at someone else's face. He would really take chances and never wanted the language to be traditional TV again. The other detectives, the FBI agents, they got to write it the way it happened. I mean, I could probably get my own people to cheat it for you, but the FBI won't. You know how tight as they are. Roland Presbaluski rides the southeastern desk on midnight shift for two months, during which time he writes a personal letter of apology to the everyone of seen that punch throw. Great, because in which he makes it Daniels has already won. That it was a penny cheap and we can punch. see that in his face. That got his ass in by but he's allowing Valchuk to have his temper tantrum and blow off and steam. It's great. And say the same to my face. And after that, he wants to piss his career away in your unit. I could give a hairy ass fuck. Lieutenant. Right. That shit goes into a supplemental. You don't put witnesses on a face sheet. Officer. Okay. Right. We got some for Freeman. Homicide, Senator. Here we are with the way it really is in the police department where, you know, it's not this uh, super efficient system. There are people there. They get inundated with loads of cases and paperwork. And you'd think that, you know, in a normal TV show, they'd be busting in and going, hi, I'm turning myself in. And it'd be this big moment, melodrama, violence playing. And it's not. It's absolutely turned on its end. Can Bob and David never would use a score to manipulate the emotions in a scene? Morphine from a city amble? You should be shamed for calling me on this one, Bob. I love this because he knocks at the door. The door opens, the door closes, 
and then he's right in the heart of the scene. And that is a major continuity leap. You don't feel it when you watch the episode, but you're right in the heart of the scene. These guys are looking out over their world. It's not going quite the way they want. They've made a decision to leave, even though there's a huge shipment of dope lying on the docks. They're not going to be tempted to follow through with it because they know that they'll be trapped. And they've uh, just murdered Sabaka. And what also is beautiful is the way that the action wasn't really scripted. It was just dialogue in the script. And Bob put in the sort of cocktail atmosphere. These two very charming guys are, you know, tinkering with the world here. And they've killed people very brutally and decided, well, you know, it doesn't always go so right. And they're going to move on. But that was, again, a great collaboration between interpretation from the director of the script and working with David to really make this an exquisite scene of these elegant European men chatting about the fate of a lot of people. This is telling us something. You're going to leave 15 million Talaria to rot on the pier. Panayamu. Lambs go to slaughter. A man he learns when to walk away. No, we go. Bob was involved with all the casting as oh, yes. David, and he did an amazing job for all three but seasons. No, there is no longer any point. David would draw on some of his past from Homicide, and I know Bob also would draw on some of his past some feature film work and also some uh, HBO projects like 61. Dimitri. Don't wait. Still here. This little bit here is also a happy accident where the two Russian muscle guys have been told, listen, the game's over. They have that sort of Romeo and Juliet almost moment where they pass Herc and Carver or sleep and are absolutely missing the moment. He agreed to post today with a lawyer, but instead... So what's left of the case? We pulled in everyone caught up in the wiretap, save for a couple bodies. We left the man we think is the number two for the operation on the street, hoping he'd... A challenge in general in the wire is when you have to deliver some important information and it takes place in a boardroom or an interrogation room or the detail office is to try and keep that alive, have people sitting at a table, keeping it interesting. And it's a lot of homework to do that, and Uda played a very significant role in that, always being able to establish the space, putting people in the room so that it doesn't become, you know, a ping-pong, a match between talking heads, and that you're still engaged as a viewer. In all likelihood, Frank Sabatka was going to speak to that. Now we're a step back, sorry to say. Again, the eyes are part of the dialogue themselves. Come on, Bubs, you got to do better. You Interrogation room, high angle. As you can see, there's not a lot of set dressing. There's not a lot of exterior stuff to keep you here in this place. And it's the photography and the uh, performances no that really make these scenes fly. How you come talking about going to jail? 
Are you in this, darling? It's well, it's a humor. <laughs> we ain't or nothing. You know, when you was up in that hospital, all I did was worry. Right? What, what, what about Kima? What's up with my girl? I'm just, I'm just, I'm just happy. I'm happy to the see the great you. Andre Royale. You, know, you can be talking about jail and shit. It's too cool, girl. Damn. Yeah. Yo, 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 yo. Remember that? Theo always, always plays right? the great. Foil to bubbles. That, that, that wasn't shit. A boy got hit with a rat shot. That all. What are you talking about? Boy named Tease. Him and the, the other East Siders moved into the terrace. Took over a couple of towers from the Springer Bells boys. There's some crazy. Bubble sort of uh, has evolved into a little bit of a comic element. So I think from a directing standpoint, you just want to let it go to the point where you're delivering the humor, but rein it back and try and retain. Credibility. I mean, it ain't like a war or nothing. It's like a, a string of bell and them sharing And he's just Sharon. delivered some very significant news. You guys are on all of it, huh? You have a public defense. Bob was very quiet, and I can imagine his work with the actors was very close to his work with the editors, which is he wouldn't give you a lot of direction at time, but would be in the room and observing every detail and then give you a few choice words that kind of immediately told you what was wrong or what was right with a scene without really interfering with the process. He never made you feel like you were wrong. He gave you a lot of space to try things, but at the same time, he could really zone into communicating with you in a quiet way. But Uncle Frank, he says he ain't gonna... Says he's going to go talk to the police. Spiro says that if we keep quiet, they can help my cousin Zig. This you know? seems pretty interesting because now, he's giving the information, and pretty much all the time you're on Nick, you can see a photograph of Sabaka right behind him. He's going to say that you know that was no accident. It's choreographed that way, and in a moment you'll see a brilliant sort of rack focus back and forth between uncle and nephew, the figurative father and son. Again, we're back to sort of important information's being laid down, people in a room. The anteroom is very dark, so you as the audience are looking at the scene through a window. So there's sort of a little play on the voyeuristic element. I was going to go down with him to the bridge. I was going to go down there. Here we go. We'll see the rack focus to his uncle. And then back again to Nick. Your eyes are almost level. It's really beautifully set up, but yet the tension's not drawn to it. It's just there. It's one of the subliminal layers that help enhance the scene and help make the show what it is. You thought it was drugs? Drugs, stolen shit, whatever. We got paid by the can to creep shit off the docks. That's all. That and selling the drugs you got from the Greek, too, right? Your cousin signed a statement. He put himself in. Talked about buying the gun. The bill of sale from the pawn shop is in there, too. You see, it wouldn't have mattered if the second victim had backed up on his story. It's, again, wonderful work by Jerry Peroni, where you just follow along with the dialogue, and she just glide you along the scene and again don't have that ping pong effect ready to give us everything if we made the drug charges go away from you maybe got your cousin to a better lock up the negro street 
As you can see, we're willing to honor that deal even if it didn't happen for your uncle. And you watch Nick's emotion change as he finds out this information. Spiros was the main guy. He told me and Frank which camps to disappear. And then when he came to me and the drugs, he was the one that hooked that up too. There's a bit of show and tell, but it's just done so you don't feel like you're being fed information. You're learning along with Perlman and the detectives. Double G was in charge of stolen shit. Anything we could lift from the docks went straight to his store. But he's dead. So why am I wasting your time, right? Her, I don't know. My uncle, you know about him. I don't know why you got horse's picture up there. Horse don't know shit. I'll testify to that. What about the Russian? He drove for him. Anything that had to come off the docks, he was that guy. But I also got the feeling that if somebody had to get hurt... The theme of the wire in conveying information is to be invisible, both with camera work, with editing, and again with the writing. David Simon has a way that he can get a lot of information across, plot information, that feels very light and part of a conversation or discussion. They said that whoever did that to them girls was dead. And how did they say it? They just said... Uh, I love the lighting in this scene. You know, know, it has but, uh, a somber mood, but yet it's extremely colorful if you look at it carefully. A, end. a lot of contrast. A dead end. Yeah. Dark side of the room, light side of the room. Who's the suit? This particular set is utilized a lot in the series, so it's a challenge to continually keep you it sure? alive we atmospherically. Know that someone is above your man, Spiros. Someone he was in communication with. Yeah, the Greek. Sure. I know who you mean. I mean, I don't have a name or nothing. The man in the suit, the man with Von Doppelus in the photograph, that's not the Greek? That's the Greek right there. That was probably an insert shot, but yet you don't feel that that was put there after the fact. Wouldn't you say, Tom? And yeah. It's just very... Very subtle, again. Subtly worked in. He picked out an east side it's a little bit of a move, somebody's he hand. It's just... All these little details make a difference when you put the piece together. And Bob never declared these as rules, but really just established this visual tone that we all got as part of this team with David Simon. And um, you could immediately tell when something was too TV. Yeah, may I use your bathroom? Fuck no. Get out of here. Bubs, one last question. How's product in the towers? It was shit, man. That's right. Through uh, his work over the years, Bob certainly had the opportunity to learn from some very fine directors, Alan Parker, Robert Benton, Bill Forsyth, and certainly many DPs, Storaro. I mean, he had worked with Bertolucci, Storaro, Michael Bauhaus, Peter Bijou, Gordon Willis. Gordon Willis. 
and Udo Brisowitz. And he never carried that around, announcing that or just uh, bringing that to the edit room or to the set. He was a real gentleman that way. You couldn't get a lot of stories out of Bob. And uh, he really just brought what he learned from their craft to the room. And you had a sense it came from the history of working with these people. It's for you. In this scene, you just have these little subtle touches that make it. He's looking at the light under the bedroom. His wife's walked in there. There's a separation that's developed between them and their marriage. But we're not really told that. We're just shown these things. And Bob would never drop those details. If he had to make up time, those were not the things that would go, whereas maybe somebody else might choose to eliminate those. But I think for some reason Bob knew that those little touches really are what made the scene. I can remember in the edit room both Bob and David really being happy that they could save a small moment when a car was turning off that they thought represented the confusion of the detectives. It it did. And uh, they fought to find a way to save that small moment. I have a lot of memories of both of them feeling really happy at the end of an episode when they could save all those details and all those moments. Here's another one. Counterterrorism. For how long? This is a crushing moment. They had the top guy in their grasp, and now it's gone. And we're on this guy for a nice couple of beats. Could have been delivered very quickly. (laughs) This is a great scene where um, the camaraderie between the two characters as well as I think their personal relationships works very well. And they told me they always enjoyed working with Bob. And he gets Kirk to just push Carver in the right spot. Just get his button. And then he goes into this rant. Of course... He's too late, and it's a humiliating moment for him, and very funny for the audience. But I think this is all in the performance, this scene. Kirk, uh, Dominic, worked with Bob in 61. Yeah, and he worked with Chris Bauer in 61, who's a lead in this season, season two. Um, He plays Frank Sabatka to great effect. This is great in the writing with David Simon and also Ed Burns, who just really nail the realistic confusion and chaos that goes on within the force. This is a a nod to the designer where Nick's been taken to a safe house and they're in a crummy motel. And look, the towel's still on the floor from the last guy who was in the room. There's little details like that that really make it sing and make it feel right. 
This is not just a hotel they rented for a set. This is actually a place where people hole up. And here we are again with the pictures threaded masterfully throughout the episode. And that stuff we took off the ship. Did we keep any photos? A couple of pictures of one guy that left his gear, yeah. They're at ECU. Vince Peranio, who's the production the designer, is um, a Baltimore native and it worked on many, many films. Was part of The Corner, which preceded this, and I believe was involved in Homicide. He goes way back with uh, David Simon. Which is something just ain't feel right. The man even know what I was saying. So I just eased off. This is a great scene because in the edit room we have in New York, we have Bob directing from this scene. Uh, a great still of him directing Omar. And I remember seeing Bob's notebook and his drawings. Each scene would be drawn out and storyboarded. Bob did a lot of the second unit work throughout the series, and you could really see how he was developing and how he was just really taking chances with the camera and also just starting to work with the actors and how he was really capturing performances that were great and sometimes uh, small scenes. The dailies would come back and you'd be really surprised on Bob's interpretation. No point trying to talk you back down, I suppose. You been my bank for how long gonna ask me something like that? How you gonna get at it? Yeah, I don't even know, Butch. Here's a parallel. If we could say that Bob really was capturing the emotion through looks and eyes and glances, which I think was conscious. We have a character here who's blind, but of course can see too much. You could hit the point very heavily, but I think they do it just right. Too damn much. A lot happened overnight. Not to us. <laughs> Look, this isn't personal. <laughs> Fucking ain't right. When Again, playing with the shot composition and the size for the impact of emotion, what's being said and what's being felt. That's part of the job. The job had a little more rip and run to it the way I remember it. Shot composition affects the editing because with the editing, you can play with the tempo and the emotions of a scene and... Bob was great at making sure that there was a variation in coverage so that you had many different ways to play out a scene, pulling some of the performance back by sometimes playing it in wide, obviously going for a close-up during certain moments that needed it when the dialogue was intense, or sometimes the opposite, playing a big line in a wide. So you almost had to force the viewer to check in even more to get the details. Of what was said. I'm late for something. Also, I'm sure this has been mentioned, but this season takes place in the port, which was a very big production deal to get down on the docks and shoot in those container areas, which are active. It was a huge feat. It makes for an extraordinary season. 
I don't think they've had a TV show done about uh, shipping and containers and All I got is court activity. All right. Any way that you can give us the name of the security officer that was working this pier on that night? What was that date again? This is great casting. I remember Bob and David, if they were happy with a character actor or an actor in a scene, they just totally embraced him and were such great friends and would enjoy the moment so much that they were in the scene themselves almost. And you felt like they were totally believing in these characters, even though they weren't the main characters of the show. not as up to speed as the rest of us. Hmm. Great choice of music here to sort of build up this hick-like feeling that this guy doesn't really know what he's doing, and then, boom, he delivers a huge piece of evidence. He's got tapes of the crime. $300 for a stroller? <laughs> I know, I know. Costs more than your first car, right? A hoopty, no doubt. Oh, we are so going to need one of these. This scene's sort of significant because there's not a lot of focus on uh, females in the wire. I think this came off so well as sort of baby shopping, and that could be cute and loving and all that sort of snuggly stuff, but the tension between the two is very palpable. This baby is going to come out of my belly. What's also more sort of the second layer of it is between the two of them, they don't understand that they have this tension. It may not be real for you yet. God damn it, it's real for me. And we have a nice reflective moment inside her head. Again, using the background. We have great sound work on the show, and Jen Ralston and her team for three seasons have given us a lot of great work. And What's going to happen, Nikki? Bob had a great connection with all of them. Nikki. Establishing the port with different sounds and establishing the environments with different sounds. We are back in the prime location of the port, and again, as I mentioned before, tactically very difficult to work because it's so dangerous. And it really is significant for them to be walking around with all that machinery working. We also made a point of going down to the port to get wild track of what this machinery sounds like in action, what it sounds like when a container hits the ground. Our sound department wasn't content to just go to a sound library. Uh, we went down and recorded the way the water sounds from a boat right off the port because it wasn't going to be like New York Harbor. It was going to be like Baltimore, and it would be different and have its own little specificities. Sorry to hear about my boy, Sergey. This scene is 
played in basically one take. There'll be some new faces. And a slow move all the way across the scene. And a bicycle comes in at the end. One of Bob's nods to the great Italian directors. And I was here the day they shot this, and I was so concerned. We got to get the bike in there. We got to get the bike in there sooner because it's never going to make the cut if we can't get it in sooner. But I don't know of any other scenes that are played in one take in this episode, certainly, and I'd have to go back and examine some of the other episodes. Have a safe trip. The other thing that's brilliant is we had this ice cream truck come through and they're playing turkey in the straw. That was real, that was practical, that was in production. It couldn't have been better planned. I remember David's discussion on the background of the ice cream truck. David would make sure that every detail is authentic. I think we had a New York truck in there at one point. It didn't fly. Yeah, so there's nothing more authentic than turkey in the straw. When I first met Bob, he right away struck me as someone who understood sound and realized its importance in building story. And uh, right then and there, I knew that I would have a chance to both learn and get an opportunity to play with sound and picture together in the edit room. Ambush in his own goddamn room? Another challenging location where these two guys are in jail. Barksdale and Bell have conversations between glass. And you'll see in the action that performance keeps it alive. The way these guys deliver their lines and the physical movement. What you see at the end of the scene when Bell goes us and he puts his fist up at the glass and Barksdale hesitates and there's just a moment where you know that this relationship is in trouble either he gonna say or he gonna go and work it out either way you ain't got to be asking him shit When you look at the language that Bob and David have set up for the show, you realize that a lot of the moves and the compositions take a lot of time. And Bob and David set up a team of people to work with him. And you realize that in the short schedule that it was a very demanding challenge to keep up this language. And a lot of times on TV, things are shot with a steady cam or things are shot in close-up for time. But there was never an answer for the wire. They somehow would keep this filmic look going and meet the demands of the schedule. Yeah, you need to go to Prop Joe. I ain't gonna argue with you. You run it as you see fit. At least till I get home, you do. Us, man. Us. This guy's never humiliated, so that's a big screen moment. <laughs> Mr. Bell. <laughs> oh, take this fucked up. It's multiplexed. Hmm? It's a way to save money. 
instead of one camera. Surveillance is a theme. Obviously, that's where we get the title of The Wire. And it's always a challenge to thread the technology into the show, build it into the scenes so that it's meaningful and interesting to look at. Is he flashing a badge? Looks like it. And actually, many things that have been revealed are cutting-edge tools that our detectives work with, that being one, the multiplexing and the ability to zoom in on a license plate. So for techno geeks, it's just as real as for street drug dealers are getting as accurate information as we can deliver about how it's really done. Rehab gonna be about a week or so late. My people having to readjust to some shit. A week? No later than that, they say. I was gonna talk about Robert Chu, how he was such a great casting discovery that Bob and David found. He plays Prop Joe. The man who just drove away in the car. Our old friend. Bob and Una knew how to edit within the camera. What's the news? Starting out sometimes in a wide and slowly pushing into a medium, and then going in for a close-up at the right moment. What's the district council saying? Mr. Pacusa, in light of your pending indictment, I would think you'd stay as far away from this hall as possible. Ain't y'all got some place to go? Just came to make it clear that if there's not some cleaning up in here, this local will be decertified. Instead of your union running out of this office, it'll be a federal magistrate down the courthouse deciding things. Take the opportunity to elect new officers, or the U.S. attorney will padlock the door, and you'll be outside looking in. A slow move in on it. But patient. There's a lot of patience here. Yeah, the camera never would come conscious and zoom in on a big moment so that you would feel it. It was all invisible. And that shot was very complicated to choreograph following his POV as his head turns. But you as a viewer just aren't aware of you know, the effort involved to make that happen. You don't think that had anything to do with this smoke, huh? This scene is great and really underscores the performance aspect of telling the story. You do better than that, Lester. This poor guy ain't got The way these lines are delivered give you the information that you need as an audience to build the case, but you're also right in their heads, right in uh, Freeman's and Bunk's heads, getting this guy to the point where he has to flip and basically say, yeah, I'll help you. This has nothing to do with me. Slowly grinding him down. It's great. It's really great. There were notes in Bob's script about how this information would be delivered, and I think this 
was done extremely effectively. Again, we're in a interrogation room, which is a difficult set to make look interesting, yet here we are drawn in. We want to know the tables as much a part of this as each individual. And we've got the technology as well. That comes back to a BWI rental. I wonder who rented it. This is aggravated murder and kidnapping. In All this these little state, it's a death pieces that have to be woven together to make the scene effective. I didn't kill him. Yet there's always room for a little bit of levity, as you'll see at the end of the scene. I was there, but I didn't kill him. Which again is a great David Simon thing where he can take you on this journey that's very serious and sad and at the same time kind of leave you with this light moment. The shepherd was supposed to watch over the women. Instead, he used them to make money. One of the women, she fought. She was killed. And this idiot kills the rest to make no way. Sergei, when he came to read, read in the Russian accent. He didn't uh, speak in his own voice, and he got the job. But his own voice was a deeply Southern American accent, and I think it was a very smart thing for him to do, to just come in character. And I think Bob was impressed by that. They're down, all 14 of them by the untimely death of a known suspect. Plus another clearance on a John Doe case, just for laughs. You, uh, want to tell Rawls? David stays completely true to the language that these cops have with one another, and it's all authentic. If at times you're lost, you just go for the ride and you figure it out within moments by action. Who's the man above Bundes? The Greek, what's his name? You want a chance at anything less than death row? You're gonna tell me right now whatever it is you know about where those bastards might be. A hotel at the harbor. This Clark one? Peters was also in the corner. Mm-hmm. He plays Freeman. David and Bob show. had history with him. He's uh, provided a very solid background to the series because he's often the person who has to deliver very concrete information. Go. Shh. Clear. Clear. You may not know this, but this is not Business an airline terminal, here. so it was Business. a great coup for the location department to find this. I think it works beautifully as a, <laughs> as a terminal. I don't even know what the actual use of the building was. Great shot as they go down the stairs and disappear, because those two, you never see them again. They've vanished off 
the face of the earth. You see the pace of the editing picking up here again, Jerry Peroni starting to pick up the pace and get prepared for the final montage in some ways. The rhythm of it all is increasing. We were late for Vandopoulos and the Greek. How late? They skipped. And again, things are being said with just the eyes, Perlman across the bar. These guys collect passports. We ain't even got a name for the Greek yet, right? What are we doing with the drug into the case? I guess we could offer up Dixon and Prop Jill to narcotics. See if they want to follow through on their end. I don't know. I wouldn't be so quick to throw Joe back into the Bob would spend a lot of time working on the background tracks with David Simon and would really work hard at getting the right track. It was never just a small moment. It had to make sense both to story and the emotion of the scene. But also feel casual. Right. I never told you this. In fact, if you tell anyone I ever told you this, I'll uh, finish my career in fucking Montana or some shit. David gave some great advice in the beginning of the show, which was never fall into a mean streets moment where the picture and track seem to work perfectly together. He said life is just not like that. Name's the Fed software, you know? I thought I was talking some fucking San Diego. 9-11 boys in D.C. It's a great background again, the camera I'm moving. I'm guessing Vondopoulos, the Greek, was an asset to them. Hooked up like that, or who knows what. I'm sorry, Lieutenant. As you know, this is a cop show that doesn't have happy endings, and that was just underscored by Russell's lines. The writers are very careful to, or not careful, it's just a point that these things don't tie themselves up in pretty bows. There are loose ends, and you do lose some things. There are trade-offs. He's about to speak in Polish. I'm not sure a foreign language. I don't know how often that's done in television on a TV show where they learn different languages. We had Greek, Polish, cop speak, street, court jargon, ethnic slang. Nothing would be translated because the emotion was there. Again, you could just go for the ride, just like the cop slang. If you didn't quite understand the language of the moment, the action or the direction of the actors could clue you into the feeling of what is being said. 
standard TV show wouldn't have time for this moment, would wrap it up with the cops solving the case and everything working out. Seniority sucks. If you ain't senior. Nick's going back to work because he doesn't know anything else. Just one baby step to kind of normalize. He's leading up to the uh, fence. Which in episode 11 was very significant. Fences keep people in, but they also keep people out. And Nick walks up to the fence and looks through. And it beautifully mirrors a scene that had taken place in episode 11 where his uncle had come up to the fence and looked through and said, you see that? It's a condominium. And this is a tradition of The Wire to break. Tradition at the end of every last show of the season to go to a score. Outbound my papa's son wandering out a smoking gun. I heard the editing in this was much slower at the beginning and Bob came in and really started to take a lot of chances and you could see as the pace increases he really wanted to push it and it, it works it never gets confusing or you never get lost with the story great shot that angle was great I mean, to start out on the feet as opposed to starting out on this shot, it's just classic wire. And this is a great moment here, editorially, getting the move, the prisoners marching along. We're trying to draw on a lot of things in this montage. The development, the decay, the status quo all of which will be further explored in season three. Mapping up the case, which so far we've done. Cleaning up the detail office, putting the case into a box, Something we've seen before, season one, the Barksdale case. This is a track by Steve Earle, and uh, Steve Earle was in the show the first season, he's a friend of Davidson. I think this fits perfectly to wrapping up the whole season, but also just the drive that's needed to convey all these old and new storylines. And yet it's not perhaps what you would expect or what you would anticipate. Here's Bob again. Yeah. Playing with the language of the camera. Getting those small moments with Luda just in gesture capturing all these characters, their disappointment. 
I think as Tom mentioned that the pace of this, where we're coming to the montage, the pace starts to pick up. We have slow motion film, and uh, slow motion film was used to great effect, especially when the girls come out of the container. The pace picks up and we get these snippets of the port world, the decay and the stasis, that there is no progress and very little hope really. And part of what this season was about was the loss of professional, loss of, of livelihood for these union port operators, stevedores they're called. And I think it's conveyed very beautifully. It's great work by Jerry Peroni again and Bob. And you get to the shot here again. We're back in the eyes of Nick as he looks out to the factory that's not producing anything. It's very telling and it's very well done and deconstructed back to the roots of, of sort of a documentary feel. Go back to the beginning of the show in the silence. That was a brave choice to use in a television show that y you don't get that flavor very often. And the use of music, of course, a rhythm to keep it driving forward. What is really great about this episode is it does have the work of Bob Colesbury and Jerry Peroni working together, and both of them are no longer with us, unfortunately. So it has a great significance from an archival standpoint. Thanks for watching this and listening to our track, and I hope I conveyed some of my love for the work that Bob had on the show and uh, also for the great work that Jerry Peroni gave to the show in her editing. It's a great lesson in filmmaking, and it was a great opportunity to learn from both of them. Thanks for listening. It's been an honor, a privilege to read to you on episode 12 of season two, which was directed by Robert Colesbury, colleague, co-executive producer, and my husband. And it was a very important achievement for him to direct an entire episode. And I'm just so thrilled and honored that he was able to make that happen, and I will always cherish this. Thank you. <laughs>